Welcome to Travelog, the podcast from Condé Nast Traveller. Happy Friday. I'm Mark Elwood. Yes, it's my week again, but again, I've got Meredith right here, so I can't say anything mean about her. Here all the time, <laughs> resident. I think that's why she's here. Uh, most of the time on Travelog, we are looking at what's new, what's next, or what's coming up. But today is not one of those times. Instead, it's sort of a stroll down travel's memory lane. We're going to look at back at the events, the announcements, the decisions that proved important in the travel world this year. Whether we realised that at the time, or we've sort of worked that out with a little bit of distance. Obviously, to do that, I'm not alone. You've heard Meredith here. I do have a <laughs> roster of travelog regulars on hand, each of whom has come sort of with her own suggestions of what mattered in travel in 2018. It's a bit like a nominating procedure. We might crown the winner at the end. Meredith, say hello formally. I am officially on this podcast. <laughs> I have Catherine the Grave, who's about to head to the airport, so she's dialing in. So if you hear her packing anything last minute <laughs> emergency, hello, Catherine. Hi. And I have our aviation guru, Barbara Peterson, right next to me on my left. Hello, Barbara. Hi, how are you? So the four of us are going to talk through things that really defined the travel landscape this year. And we have some fun stuff, some serious stuff, and a little bit in between from flights, hotels, uh, Airbnb, all of that. I want to kick us off. Catherine, can you kick us off and talk to us about what you think was sort of one of the really important headlines from the travel world this year about checked bags and, and the battle for our dollar in the hold? Sure, sure, absolutely. So one of the biggest stories, I think, was that JetBlue started charging $30 for the first check bag. And they did this in August, and they were the first major U.S. airline to do so. And that was an increase of $5, which might not seem that much, but at the time, it was an industry high for U.S. carriers. And so I think all of us sort of sat back and watched and said, okay, who's going to be next? Because once JetBlue did it, um, American, United, Delta, Southwest, they all followed and raised their prices. So it's an indicator of, of how airlines are trying to make money where they can without detracting from the experiences that make them stand apart. Like JetBlue, for example, is a really good, um, really good example because they're trying to you know, make money, right? But they don't want to take away <laughs> the live that. TV. <laughs> they don't want to take away the live TV and the free entertainment and the stuff that we know JetBlue for. But fuel costs were higher this year. So it was a, a sort of trend story in that we're seeing airlines trying to make money where they can. You know, Southwest still lets passengers check two bags for free. Sorry about that. That was an error um, when I said that earlier. But they, for example, have upped their early boarding fees um, to compensate for some of the money that they're leaving on the table. So again, I think... You said the magic word. If you say Southwest three times, I think <laughs> Meredith just appears. It's like Candyman, Candyman, Candyman. Well, and I mean, one of the biggest tricks to flying Southwest has always been that $15 early bird check-in charge, which means that you'll be in the A group, um, which means that you know, since there isn't assigned seating, you will get on the plane first and you will get your kind of pick of the seats available, whether you want to be in an aisle or a window or an exit row. You have the most choices if you're in the A group. And now it's anywhere between 15 and $25, depending on how long your flight is, how popular the route is, all that sort of stuff. So, But I want to, obviously, Barbara, no one knows more about JetBlue than you. What's the name of your book? <laughs> Blue Streak. Just if you haven't picked up a copy of Blue Streak, still available. Yes, but, it's, uh, but you can get us, on Amazon. Tell yeah. us why 
it's so significant that JetBlue would be charging with the first check bag because I think it's always stood apart a little bit from American Delta United, whomever, right? Precisely. Yeah, that's that's really what sort of was their impetus to start up in, well, almost 20 years ago, was we are sort of almost the anti-airline. You know, at that mm-hmm. point, it was the big airlines and they were bad and they were, you know, just the, didn't care about the customer. So they staked out that territory. However, when you stake that out, that's tough because you have to keep on living up to that. You know, you've put yourself out there as, oh, we're going to treat you more humanely. We're not going to rip you off. But Ultimately, economic realities set in. I mean, you could look at, you could flip it over completely, and you could also say it's amazing that they survive because the track record for startup airlines is is really pretty dismal. So yes, to guarantee they can survive, you know that yes, they have to be aware of these things, and they did. You know, again, the, the leg room it was another issue where they always carve that out, literally, I guess, in the plane. They said, you know, we'll give you more legroom. Then they got some new planes and they started fooling around a little bit with that. And now they're starting to look more like a regular airline with several classes of service. They brought in Mint. They did, yes. they did all the things that it felt like JetBlue at the beginning. JetBlue was more akin to Southwest and now it's sort of drifting towards yeah. the other one. On the other flip side is that a lot of the more traditional legacy carriers are seeing JetBlue's success in certain areas, even if it's being able to charge $30 for bags, they know, oh, well, this is working for them and their passengers aren't like jumping ship left and right. Like, we can meet them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And also, yeah, I have to point out that their mint product is a category killer. I mean, it really is. You know, they, when they do things like that, they really did a great job. So you followed, I was going to say JetBlue. I want to talk about something else on planes. Catherine, talk to me about, and I think I'm going to say something quite controversial. But the emotional support animal racket, I can't believe, has gone on as long as it has. This was the year that people finally weren't allowed to say their pet parrot was there to stop them trying to open the emergency door during flight. Right, Catherine? Well, some airlines will still let you bring a parrot on. But (laughs) yes, this year we saw a crackdown from airlines pertaining to emotional support animals. And this is really because there have been such an increase in the number of emotional support animals appearing on planes. So for people that, just a little primer, um, an emotional support animal, broadly speaking, before a lot of these rules were, were put in place, were animals that kind of like Mark is alluding to would help you feel better, would ease your stress. And you just had to, you know, fill out a form, um, depending on the airline, maybe have a doctor's note, and then you could bring your animal on board free of charge. And one airline that's really cracked down um, would be Delta. And this is because they say, look, we've seen an 84% rise in accidents with these animals, you know, bad behavior from these animals on, on planes. They're not trained properly. So now airlines like Delta, like JetBlue, like United, American have all said, okay, these animals, it has to be more standardized. We're going to ask for maybe a veterinarian's note that says this animal is up to date with shots and is trained, you know, suitably trained. We're going to have a note from your medical professional that says you actually need this animal. So I think that we're going to, again, this is an area where we're going to see more restrictions. It does seem, I have to say, I'm an animal lover, but it does seem only fair. I think people who do need animals for truly medical reasons, 
I understand it's a little bit more admin, but I think there are many people who are nervous flyers and sitting next to an animal can make it materially more difficult. And just because you'd like to bring your pet on board and you can sort of work the system, I don't know. And I'd love, I'm sure the listeners have feelings. Meredith, tell me. Well, and I would also say that in 2017 and in part in 2018, you know, we saw all of these terrible things happen to animals who were in the cargo hold. And I think that this... You know, I don't have the scientific data behind this statement, but my opinion is that a lot of that comes from kind of a reaction to that. Well, I don't want to travel with Mm -hmm. my dog in the hold, and I also don't want to pay for a ticket, so I'm going to travel with them in this way that is technically in accordance with the rules that are or are not in existence on those airlines. And you can listen to a podcast from March where we had a bunch of pet lovers come on and talk about how they travel with their pets and how they fly with them because that is like a very complicated process. And it's going to be more complicated as airlines like Delta kind of settle into what they actually want the rules to be because for so long it hasn't even been something that they had written down. It was no, a free and, for all. and let's clarify, no one by bringing emotional support animals on board was breaking the rules. No. Delta has just tightened the rules so that there has to be a true sense of emotional support animal versus I'd rather have my pet in the cabin with me. And I have to say, I am team Delta on this one because I do think I'm not a nervous flyer, but I did have a dog next to me on a recent flight who you know, was not the best behaved or whose owner did not help him be the best behaved. And I thought, wow, if I were nervous around dogs, that would have been a miserable four hour flight. And I think that as these, you know, rules have been tightened, they've become a lot more logical. Like it has to be a pet that can respond to commands. And that's why, you know, there were all these jokey headlines about mini horses being allowed as an emotional support pet. (laughs) But of, and I mean, a mini horse is as likely to respond to commands as a dog or a cat and like those that's such a weird thing to think about can I just ask alright ladies I, I've flown next to a dog have any of no. you flown next to a mini horse <laughs> no. Barbara please tell no. me you spend more of the more time on planes than ever craziest emotional support animal you've seen in the cabin well I've heard some crazy ones the peacock I think has to take the cake you know monkeys um, you know uh, what uh, armadillo I don't know that one I just threw out there um, but seriously it, it, you know it's easy to find the funny stories, you know, that are pegged to the fact that it was a really un- unusual, to put it mildly, animal to be brought on board. But I do think that this is, again, one of these things now that the airlines are realizing that they've got to either address or else Congress will address. And actually, if I could segue into one of the things that I did want to talk one of the stories that I thought was one of the leading ones last year is, is that in this omnibus legislation that Congress passed, it took them three years of work and post, mostly postponements. But <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, your tax dollars are work. Yeah, they finally spat out this bill, which is long awaited, which funds the Federal Aviation Administration. However, that's just really a rubric you know, for doing everything about air transportation that you can in one piece of legislation. So everybody in Congress who had heard from constituents about these types of issues tried to get their language in. And actually, a lot of it got cut in the final you know, version, but one of the things that survived was a language on service animals. And now it isn't that Congress said you have to allow any service animal on no matter what. It just said that airlines now, with the DOT's assistance or, or oversight, have to come up with accepted guidelines, you know, and that the Department of Transportation has to get involved. They have to oversee this if the airlines aren't, you know... So, but forgive me, Barbara, what I want to understand is, why should I care that 
after three years, they finally funded the FAA. Like, what, why does it matter that they funded the FAA? Other than obviously, we want people who work at the FAA to get their wages. Yeah. Okay, well, that is precisely the point because the problem is that when you don't have a longer term funding, this is a five year bill, then you go on these sort of extensions every year. That means you can't really do any large programs that are sort of longer term. It's just sort of, you know, kicking the can down the road. So, for example, you know, one of the issues that is still plaguing air passengers is delays at the largest airports, which are getting larger and larger, by the way. There's a bigger gap now between the largest airports, which just more and more people fly into, and the smaller and mid-sized ones, which have actually been losing flights, which... Okay, but, and but, just to pause yeah. there, Catherine, so, you know, are you entitled to anything if you are delayed on a flight? <laughs> I seem to remember we talked about this recently. Catherine, what are you entitled to if you're delayed? We did have a big conversation about this. Uh, nothing. Exactly. <laughs> Moving on. So that's why we need the FAA. Yeah, well, the FAA is um, actually right now, the problem is they're operating with sort of 1950s era air traffic control computers. And so one of the points of having this longer term funding is to finally get them to modernize the system to be able to have more flights operate in the same airspace. But but actually, back to what was important for passengers, the other big bugaboo that, that was huge, you know, a huge story this year, too, was increasingly tight seating and how the airlines are trying to push the envelope even more to how many seats they can cram in in the same space. They're making the lavatory smaller. So guess what? They can squeeze one more passenger seat into the main cabin. They're obviously in some rows, you know, fooling around with the legroom. So what Congress did was they passed in this bill a provision that requires the Department of Transportation to begin the process of regulating seat sizes, like determining what is the, the minimum, minimum yeah. Yeah. Like, in other words, which is a pretty low bar. <laughs> but I mean, we'll take, it's sort of like, we'll take what we can. We're actually finally seeing the government stopping the airlines whittle away at our seating until essentially you pay extra not to sit on someone's lap. This will protect us against that, right? <laughs> Precisely, yeah. <laughs> can yeah. I, I was gonna say, Barbara, I wanna ask you about something else when we talk about, in a slightly more serious vein, we talk about challenges on flights. Um, I know, you know, this year, the, it was the first fatal crash of the uh, or first fatality involved with the Boeing 737. Can you talk a little bit about that? And why that matters and why that was important? Yeah, well, we had two air crashes that were in the news for different, obviously, they're very different. But um, one was the Lion Air crash, which was recent, that was in Jakarta, off Jakarta. And that involved, it was the first fatal crash aboard the newest version of the 737, which is like the workhorse of the narrowbody fleet worldwide. And it's the 737 MAX is a very efficient aircraft. It is more advanced in some ways, which, you know, again, this is an ongoing investigation, but there is um, uh, some suggestion that some of the more advanced aspects of it may have actually contributed inadvertently to the crash because the crew was having difficulty with un interpreting some of the data coming out of it. So that that was significant. I mean, not just because, I mean, it was horrific and 189 people lost their lives, but also because it does cast doubt on a new aircraft. And I think a lot of airlines also had invested in pre-purchasing these airplanes and are now either reconsidering or waiting until the new mm -hmm. instruction manuals and those sorts of things that were ordered to come out so that 
they make sure that the same thing doesn't happen with them. Precisely, because like Norwegian Air, for example, has based its whole strategy on flying to you know shorter routes and you know more thinly sort of populated routes on this precise aircraft. It's the seven three seven max. That they're not flying seven eight sevens on some of these routes. And so, no, but I do think, and Barbara, you when we were talking when we were preparing for the podcast, one of the things you said. Let's reiterate one of the reasons these fatalities are now so startling is that aviation in general is so safe and 2018 has been one of the safest years on record which is why they are so noteworthy but it is important to offset that 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 flying is still very right it's still very safe right? and i would also say that in the u.s specifically this year it seems like it was forever ago but the southwest engine issue with the window breaking was the first fatality in a decade almost yes, a decade it was um for a u.s carrier and i think that again like knowing that it is so rare if you fly in the U.S. to encounter any of those sorts of problems. And it's interesting. I want to. I, we've got a few more airline things that I, I want to cover, but I want to broaden us beyond because this isn't our year in air travel. I do want to talk about, Meredith, one of the things that you brought up was some of the challenges Airbnb and home sharing has faced this year. Remind everyone... I always think Airbnb, I feel like it's a teenager right now and it's going through its spotty, awkward phase when it doesn't know what outfits work. <laughs> Tell me what what was the what was happening. So Airbnb celebrated its 10th birthday this year, which is a, a big deal. And I think a lot of people still consider it a startup, even though it's getting more and more mainstream, maybe because they keep having these offshoots like experiences and plus and all these other new things that, that they launch. Confusing things that don't make sense <laughs> from a business strategy point of view, maybe, as I, I mean, would put it. But again, I think that you have a company that's 10 years old that it does homes very well. They know what they're doing. And you know, as they launch these new things, they might not be as financially successful out the gate, but it did take Airbnb 10 years to get here. So I think that giving experiences and trips like a little bit of a runway is important in kind of seeing how this all maps out. But I will say, so over the last couple of years, probably the last three years, city and national governments around the world are like, oh wait, what are you guys up to over there? You've been doing this thing and now it's actually, you know, more mainstream and more people are doing it. So are you even doing something that we're okay with? The category killing moment, wasn't it Japan? So in, oh man, in June, Airbnb and the Japanese government had been trying to work out kind of a compromise about who could rent out their home, how many days, all those sorts of things. And it wasn't just Airbnb, it was all of the home sharing companies. So places like VRBO and HomeAway and other local like Ryokan rental places that were renting out people's homes that usually would be lived in by residents. And in a kind of complicated situation uh, that I won't go fully into. But there's a great story on the side of people want more Yes. Detail. Japan kind of jumped the gun a little bit and then just like kicked almost all of, you know, 80% of Airbnb's listings off of their like legal site. So all of these listings that people had had, trips that people had planned suddenly were no longer an option. And, you know, it caused a lot of strife for our readers. There are 62,000 homes and ryokans and rentals on Airbnb in Japan in total. And 80% of those were closed. And all those people could then go to the Japanese government, register, they can only host for 180 days a year. You have to you know, present your registration number on the site, which is something you now have to do in Paris. Mm -hmm. It's something you have to do 
wildly. And there are places like New York that also have very strict restrictions that have come into effect in the last year. Like you can only rent an Airbnb if it's for more than 30 days. Exactly. So it's I not mean, as easy. What we're starting to see is the world understanding where home sharing en masse fits into the hospitality and most importantly tax landscape. Because the reason this is happening is these destinations get bedroom taxes from hotel rooms. And if home sharing has exploded from being a kind of niche thing to being very widespread, those conurbations, quite fairly, I think, say, hey, <laughs> if you're making money out of your home, you should be paying some form of tax to the city that maintains the street. And we're seeing that kind of unfurl. Right? And I would also say Airbnb always, you know, when they their PR statements come out, it's always, you know, we're trying to work with the city government. We're trying to work with this government. You know, we want the best for our hosts and our guests. And there is a part of that that I understand because, especially in Japan, the rules were so confusing that for them to even come up with, you can only you know, stay for 180 days, you can only rent out for this much time, you have to register, all of these rules, it set actual guidelines that those hosts and guests could then follow. And so it made it easier for people to Airbnb legally. And I think that is something that's very important is that just like with you know the Lime scooters and Ubers mm -hmm. and all those sorts of things that are coming these travel 2.0 companies that are coming into cities and changing fundamentally the way that we get around and stay in these cities, like naturally the cities are going to need to make some sort of statement as to how they fit in there. And I think the important thing to remember is that it's going to be different everywhere. And so making sure you're up to speed and check our site and an Airbnb site so that you know what is legal listing and what you need to be looking for. Airbnb is one area of accommodation that, that, again, was kind of sputtering. There were a lot of changes this year. I'm very interested. A very recent piece of news was that one of the last independent, significant premium hotel chains in the world just got snapped up. Belmond, which is this luxury, it owns the Cipriani in Venice, it owns the Orient Express hotels that used to be called Orient Express till it lost that rights to that name, owns some of the most beautiful landmark, Copacabana in Rio. Everyone knew it was up for sale. It had that big, you know, the big flashing light in the window. But lots of hotel chains had circled it. But fascinatingly, a non-hotelier, LVMH, which owns Clo 19 and experiences, blah, 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 that picked it up. LVMH does own Cheval Blanc. What do you think it means, Barbara, in terms of, you know, Belmont being bought by someone who isn't a travel company? Do you think it presages in 2019 more deals like that? Oh, I think so. I think it's it's sort of really a trend that's been sort of waiting to, to pounce on us. And though we've seen it in the past, our, years and years ago in the airline business, we had some very interesting sort of non-aviation companies come in. And, and you know, at one point there was a talk about a movie, a movie, a movie and entertainment company taking over. Uh, I, I do think that Travel, though, is still really different, and most of those sorts of partnerships kind of fell apart. So do you predict, I mean, do you predict an unhappy match between Belmont and LVMH? Oh, gosh, I, I, could, I couldn't because I do think that there's a lot of commonality there. Now, if, if, if LVMH wanted to buy an airline, I would say, oh, yeah, that, that's a really bad idea because, it's, <laughs> because they are very, very different. But I would, I mean, what do you think? 
I mean, to me, LVMH owns all of the fancy things. They are a, such a luxury brand that has so many offshoots into so many parts of people's lives. And for them to now have some of the most beautiful hotels, like you were talking about, some of the most luxury hotels, having these stunning trains, you know, those customers and guests who they were used to having come and shop at LVMH brands and book LVMH experiences and all of that sort of thing, those are the people already staying at Belmont Hotels. So it only makes sense that they would. And also remember, LVMH already has a partnership deal with Marriott for the Bulgari Hotels. Bulgari is the jewelry mm. brand that's one of the one of the, the LVMH portfolio. But I would expect there to be, you'll start seeing LVMH toiletries in the Belmont <laughs> Hotel bathrooms because then it's the, it's the synergy. You know, LVMH is a luxury company, but it's also just brilliant at marketing. So I expect just keep your eyes peeled for how the boutiques will change in the hotels, all of that. One other thing, when we're talking about kind of luxurious experiences, extreme experiences, Catherine, you had, tell us this year, <laughs> it's sort of eye-watering to think about it, but tell us about what is currently the world's longest flight and what it was like and why it's important. Sure, absolutely. So this fall, Singapore Airlines brought back their world's longest flight. And they'd flown this route from Newark to Singapore nonstops um, up until 2013. Um, but they got a new plane that lets them fly farther um, and is, is more fuel efficient, right? So that's one of the reasons it's a big deal because this plane can fly uh, more than 11,000 miles without stopping, which is about 20 hours in the air without refueling. Um, so that's crazy because the more um, airline companies that get this plane, obviously this race for the title will continue. But Singapore Airlines currently holds it. And I went on this flight and admittedly, I was really nervous at first because I don't like flying. I was going to say, um, I feel like you did something wrong in the office. I don't know why you were being punished with this long flight because you're not the, you're not the happiest of flyers among us. <laughs> no, not at all. And I was really like, what am I going to do for... 18 and a half hours, right? And before, you know, I talked to some people from Singapore Airlines and they said, look, the good thing about this flight is it basically is a whole day. You have a whole day sort of uninterrupted. And I was thinking, that sounds terrible. I don't want a whole day in the sky because I have done the um, Singapore flight uh, from New York with a layover. And, you know, I thought it would be nice to break it up. But when I actually did it, when I was flying for 18 hours, it ended up being 18 hours, I actually saw what they meant. You know, it's nice to sort of have that whole time to do whatever you want, to structure it like a whole day. The first half of the flight, I read, I watched movies, I had dinner, and then I just basically slept the whole second half because it was sort of like a full day. Um, uh, and this flight, this flight is only business and premium economy, right? So they have configured it so that you were in business, you were in a comfy seat. Exactly. I was in business class and I, I have tested their premium economy uh, product as well. And I think it's also very comfortable. Again, like you said, fortunately for this, I was lucky enough to be in business class. And if you're in Singapore Airlines business class, it's it's pretty top of the shelf, right? Um, people love Singapore Airlines. I love Singapore Airlines. You know, it's won our Reader's Choice Awards multiple years in a row for good reason. And so that definitely helped. It was hilarious when Catherine was getting ready for this flight because she was talking about how much access she was going to have to checking her email and things like that. And there were certain time periods where yeah. they tell you, like, you won't have Wi-Fi like, while we fly over these places or like when we're over the ocean for like ocean. large stretches of time. <laughs> so just like plan around the Wi-Fi breaks at these periods. Did, how many emails did Catherine bother to send from that? Oh, like, see, I think I got one Slack message and I was like, you are flying in the air right now messaging me on Slack. <laughs> 
Another nice thing about this flight that you can't do on the flight with a layover is that in, if you're in business class, you can eat anytime you want. So I could wake up and ding the bell and choose anything I wanted from their a la carte menu and they would make it for me. So that was another nice feature of this uninterrupted flight. Whereas with the flight with a the layover, they have to plan the meal service around you know, takeoff times and touchdown times and things like that. I'm picturing you with a hotel desk bell just dinging your bell, ding, 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 saying, ding, ding. I would like a warm towel now. I know I just had one, but I need another one. <laughs> actually, I, I'm a pretty, I, I actually, it's it's sort of wasted on me because I don't eat that much in the plane. And Singapore Airlines, they, I always say this, but they were really befuddled that I didn't want to eat all the time. And just, they kept Eventually, they just started putting food on my tray and then said, I'm just going to leave this here. Sort of, sort of passive aggressively guilting you into eating. Sort of. You know, I think they were worried. They said, well, you didn't eat anything, you know, for breakfast earlier. And I was like, I don't, I have my Auntie Anne's. I'm good. <laughs> okay. So, Barbara, tell us, there is an industry lingo for these 19-hour flights and what they presage. What do they call them and what should we expect this to lead okay, to? Okay, the ultra long haul. I think it's usually considered anything over than 15 hours. Um, and and there are more of these now than there were a few years ago. For example, New York to Nairobi. That was a route that um, you could never fly nonstop. And you'd have these long layovers in Europe. I took and, that flight. It was very nice. Yeah. Very, very nice. And I have to say, was Kenya it? Airways yeah. was a lovely experience. There was a real warmth and there was a very sense of Africanness to it. And yet it was a brilliantly operated. The plane was great. It was a lovely combination. It felt very much like a distinctive experience rather than a generic fancy flying experience. Oh, great. Well, I'll have to try it. Yeah, so, uh, what class were you in? I was in business class, obviously, because <laughs> okay. that's where I belong. <laughs> okay. Well, that is, yeah. Now, I, ha I have to say that it really is um, incumbent on these airlines to make sure that they're, they're not going to put you in something like cattle class that we're accustomed to flying when we fly to, say, Europe. You know? So, yes, I mean, and now Emirates and Etihad and Qatar, they're all sort of vying with each other, you know, to try to have some of the longest ones in the world. So you're seeing like, you know, um, Dallas, Sydney and things like that. And as you look to the future, more airlines are already starting to work on on even longer flights. Qantas is looking at a 20 hour flight in 2020. And so there are even longer experiences. You know, these airlines are working specifically on the technology to make that happen. So they're not planning on doing it with what we have right now. They want better air circulation and temperature control and all these things that will make you feel better about being on a I plane mean, for so don't long. don't get me wrong, 20 hours in an economy mm -hmm. seat is going to be brutal, but the airlines, it is it is for your own health, it, it behooves them to do something other than just bolt you in and say, mm -hmm. see you on the other <laughs> side. The other. <laughs> but yeah, I think this is, I think this presages that the Singapore flight, the London-Perth flight, mm -hmm. a lot of these ultra-long hauls, they're going to be more and more common and you're going to see them when you look to book. And remember, the one thing I'd remind people, they're going to look more expensive than you realize because they're longer flights. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons flight prices went up this year is that there are lots of these ultra long hauls that average out, make things a little pricier. I want to, we've got, just before we close, I have a couple of sort of problems or sort of beginnings and endings that I think are perfect to talk about. The first is what I'm going to call suitcase apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to take suitcase apocalypse? I will take suitcase apocalypse. So this year, you know, 
we've we've talked about and debated on this podcast before the merit and the reality of the smart suitcase. So whether or not having a charger in your suitcase actually provides any use to you no. whatsoever. No. And the general consensus no. is that it's a very nice thing to have. It is not necessary. And you know, with lithium batteries being a flammable explosive source of concern, um, which is why you can't put, say, your laptop in your checked bag, and they really suggest you not to do that. They didn't want so many lithium batteries altogether in the overhead bins. And so airlines instituted policies against smart luggage. You had to have removable lithium batteries and those chargers and all those things. You had to be able to take them out. So a lot of luggage companies that had built their brand around smart luggage, specifically one of the companies that really introduced it in a very chic packaging in the first place, Raiden, just kind of fell apart because Imploded. people stopped buying them. And then after this absolute burst onto the scene, totally fizzled out and closed. It's Raiden. It's Blue Smart. It's many. There are lots of smaller brands. It has essentially been whittling down where Away, which was one of the other rivals, but did have a removable battery, survived. And I think that a good place to start if you're trying to figure out what the heck is going on here is to listen to our Women Who Travel episode with Jen Rubio, who's a founder at Away, because we brought this up to her and we said, look, like, how did you survive when everyone else fell apart? And she was like, that's not the only thing that we had going for us. Like, we had these partnerships and we had all these things that we were working on. They only had the battery in one of their bags, so it didn't hit them as hard as it did other companies. I think, what bag do you have? What do you travel with, Barbara? <laughs> Oh, I have just a standard, you know, wheelie. The, the, <laughs> actually, I got one at an airport. This is so funny. I had an old one that was really beat up. And I thought, rather than go out and I don't have time to do this, I'm going to get a new one at the airport. Because it always struck me how curious it was that there are luggage stores like at, an air, at, at a terminal. I mean, like, exactly. who, who comes without right? a bag? Yeah. Like, <laughs> with a garbage bag full of clothes. And they're like, you know, I really just needed a new suit. <laughs> well, for some, but, but you know what happened? It was It was doing a story for Connie traveler on where to sh do your Christmas shopping and I, f I interviewed a bunch of people who you know involved in the concession side of airports and they said that's one of their top selling items is bags so the next time I went to JFK mm -hmm. Terminal 5 there's this Muji store there and I'd always admired their their wheelies because they're nice and compact and they're kind of interesting colors and I thought I'm gonna do it and they had one on sale by golly for you know, nine, 99 bucks and, and the great thing is what they do is an added feature is they'll take your old bag and they'll repack your new one with oh, everything so you want because I yeah. was picturing you yeah. with your sort of lingerie like, like <laughs> flying over your over your shoulders while you repacked into your new bag the ignominy yeah. of that would also put me off buying a new bag so they'll repack it for you <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah which I think is great they probably did a better job than I did but but, <laughs> but no but I don't I don't travel with it I, I try to travel light because you know these days the big issue is bin space and if you get to the jetway and you're one of the last ones on the jetway you may not be able to take it on the plane with you that's happened to me three times in the past three flights i've taken and so then you just see it just go down that chute and you hope you'll see it when you <laughs> I, I, do you know i want to throw this out there to the listeners i want to hear has anyone ever bought a suitcase at an airport and why i'm so curious please tweet at us tell us did your bag break did you go knowing your bag was on its last legs were you like barbara and just shameless what was it I've gone to the airport with a bag that the strap broke. It was a duffel and the strap broke. And I literally was like, well, guess I'm just going to have to retie it. Like, and retie it. And it was so uncomfortable and horrible. And, and I had to end up running through the airport with it 
and I should have just bought a new bag. Like, it was so dumb. I'm with you. I have to say, one other thing that I want to flag from 2018 is sort of airline beginnings and endings. Um, I know Barbara wants to talk about this because, you know, we saw Primera and Cobalt go bust. Primera, very famously, was a European airline that offered $99 one-ways from North America and went kaput, leaving everyone completely stranded, and shamelessly so, was literally... It, the equivalent of evaporated in the Star Trek evaporator. People showed up for their for their flight. They checked in. They sat at the gate, and then they were like, "Sorry, guys, the airline doesn't exist anymore, and there's no customer service, and you're gonna have to figure out another way to get home." So it's which is, I mean, we laugh. I'm, I, you know, and I apologize. We obviously we're being a little facetious, but that must have been really hard. I mean, we're, we're laughing because it's so unbelievable. That is not something that we covered in our "What to Do If Everything Goes Wrong on Your Trip" episode. An amazing episode. Basically, if you we recorded, this. you know, Wow Air really struggled. Um, wow is the Icelandic air carrier that has popularized many of the sort of deep discounted transatlantic deals that we just touched on with Primera was rescued by Frontier. David Neeleman, JetBlue founder, has bought 60 planes for his embryonic airline, codenamed Moxie. What does this all mean, Barbara? Those of us who didn't see Primera going kaput, should we have adjusted our glasses or was that out of nowhere? Uh, No, it was not out of nowhere. And I have to say Primera was... I mean, it got off to a very rocky start when it started flying to the United States. Now, Primera had already been in business. You know, it was flying these sort of short routes in Europe. And I guess, you know, like mo- many of these, it started out as kind of a charter, you know, room in really, you know, what you'd call real dirt cheap, you know, kind of super no frills. I mean, you get a seat and that's basically it. And they tried to transplant that to the transatlantic because they saw other airlines like Norwegian having a huge success and they thought they could do it. But they just made all the classic mistakes. You know, they grew too fast. They started having problems with their planes and the canceling flights. And that becomes sort of a spiraling effect because the more you cancel flights and the less reliable you are, then... It's a death spiral. Yeah, precisely. And and then, then what happened was, yeah, I mean, they did literally shut down like with no notice. And that's something that happens more often outside of the United States because most areas of the world, I, I assume the EU and, you know, Asia and all that, they don't have... Barbara's pointing at me and that's sort of like, <laughs> you're European. Okay. okay, so you have to defend this. <laughs> exactly. They're not my people. Well, because in the United States, most of airlines don't shut down that rapidly. They usually get Chapter 11 protection from creditors and then they try to reorganize. So it's pretty unusual in the United States. It hasn't happened in quite a long time. But I think we're about to see another wave of these failures. And um, I think people who buy these tickets in other places of the world have to be really careful. If it's an airline you don't really know very well. Well, I would also say that there are sometimes you know, you were talking about there were signs. And I think there are often signs, you know, in the case of Primera, there were nonstop flights that they were flying between the US and London. And then people got on the plane. And you know, five hours was added to their flight because they were actually flying on a plane that couldn't make it all the way. So they had to stop in Iceland to refuel, (laughs) which is not the flight that you signed up for. And, you know, airlines like Level where, you know, a woman had purchased, you know, in that introductory fare, I'm going to buy the $129 flight and hadn't, you know, really checked to make sure that her flight existed because why would you feel like you needed to do that? Showed up at the airport to check in and the flight didn't exist anymore. And 
I would have panicked. And I think that there are these like kind of warning signs, mostly based on whether or not the airline can supply the physical planes mm-hmm. to be able to get the job check done. Social, but check social media, check postings. And I will say, just to, I don't want to end on a down note. So I want to I want to give a shout out to whoever at the Singapore Tourism Board managed to persuade Hollywood to make the brilliant movie <laughs> that is Crazy Rich Asians, because every other country's destination marketing board must be gnashing their teeth. I have never seen it's a, a, such a beautiful advertisement, a more delicious <laughs> unpaid infomercial, <laughs> which is both a brilliant film and uh, just a. Fa- I mean, if if you haven't been to Singapore and you saw that movie, I defy you not to think I've got to go to Singapore. Do you agree? Do you think I think? Oh, this totally. Is- and it made me think. Mm, I really need to fly the actual, like, beautiful mm-hmm. first class mm-hmm. cabins. <laughs> That needs to be a life experience that well, I have um, next year. No, here's a trivia question, though. What was the airline's name in the movie? Oh, it's like they, a pan-Asian yeah, 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 they, they, they came up with some fake you know, airline and, name. Any, and, any yeah. super fans yeah. of Crazy Rich Asians, please tweet that at us. Okay, I want to bring us to a close and just to say, don't forget to check out all of our podcasts anywhere you get them, whether it's on SoundCloud, you know all the apps, you've all got that. And of course, you can find all of us at cntraveler.com. I, just, I also want to thank Cedar Park fan for the five-star review to say thank you so much for this perfect podcast. (laughs) Starting in January 2019, I'll be traveling full-time. And that is my perfect segue. Meredith, you have a bit of an announcement for us. I do have an announcement, which is that after three years of the Travelogue podcast, this, with our super team of cast members, will be our last episode. We have had such a great time sharing our travel stories and tips with you. Thank you for being such loyal listeners and leaving us such lovely five-star reviews. You can continue to hear your favorite traveler editors over on Women Who Travel, which comes out every Monday on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And you can also continue to find Travelog episodes from the last three years on those same podcast apps. As always, we love hearing from you, and you can continue to reach us on Twitter at CN Traveler and reach the, out to all of us. I was going to say all the platforms. We've got we have Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube, CN Traveler on Instagram. We love hearing from you. We've had such a blast making Travelog. I hope you have enjoyed it. We truly enjoy each other's company, and I hope that has come across. It's been such a blast. I can't wait to hear how much bigger and better women who travel will be next year. Please keep in touch with us. Meredith, how can people get in touch with you? As always, I'm at Oh Hey There Mayor. Catherine, how do they get there? I think people know this about it. Catherine? I'm on Twitter at KJ LaGrave. Barbara, how do people get in touch with you? Well, on Twitter, probably, at Peterson B. Perfect. And you can reach me on Twitter at Mark J. Elwood. You won't hear me on Women Who Travel. I'm probably the one person you won't. But you will see me on TV, and you can always get in touch with me by Twitter. Uh, thank you for listening. We love Travelog. We love our listeners. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as we have.